He's detecting uh, labor here in Pittsburgh, literally on the walls. Um, labor uh, workers being sacrificed to industry. Um, I, one of the murals is mothers giving uh, their sons to American industry, and it depicts a, uh, a dead miner. The talking heads David Byrne called him the Diego Rivera of Pittsburgh. When Croatian painter and immigrant Maxo Vanka first visited Pittsburgh in 1935, he fell in love with the steel town and developed a friendship with Father Albert Zagar of the St. Nicholas Croatian Church in Millvale. Zagar longed for color on his church's plain walls, but he didn't want the usual imagery found in most religious houses. He knew Vanka was the perfect artist for the job. Vanka painted 25 murals that cover every inch of the church. And today, artists and activists, including members of the United Steelworkers, are working to restore the historic art to its original glory. On today's show, the Steelworkers Solidarity Works podcast talks with two of their union's members who are dedicating their time and expertise to saving these murals and about what they mean for Pittsburgh and the labor movement as a whole. And on Labor History in Two. The year was 1908. That was the day the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on the Lowe versus Lawler case, also known as the Danbury Hatters case. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Maxo Vanka. Born Maximilian Vanka in 1889, immigrated to America from Croatia in the early 20th century due to the growing fascist threat to his Jewish family. During Vanka's first visit to Pittsburgh in 1935, he fell in love with the steel town and made a fortuitous friendship with Father Albert Zagar of the St. Nicholas Croatian Church in the city's Melville neighborhood. Zagar longed for color on his church's plain walls, but he didn't want the usual imagery found in most religious houses. He knew Vanka was the perfect artist for the job. I painted so that divinity and becoming human would make humanity divine, Vanka once said. And that's exactly what he did with his 25 individual murals that cover the full interior of the Roman Catholic Church. Vanka maximized his opportunity to pay tribute to faith while expressing his passionate beliefs about social justice, the horrors of war, and helping to celebrate an immigrant population. In 1937 and 1941, he adorned the walls that make up what is now often called America's Sistine Chapel, with striking images such as a mother sacrificing her deceased son to industry, an angel wearing a gas mask, and Mary fighting on the battlefield. Decades later, artists and activists, including members of the United Steelworkers Union, are doing the painstaking yet incredibly vital work of restoring these murals to their original glory and raising awareness about the project and preserving its legacy. Today, we're talking with two USW members about their involvement with the Save Maxo Vanka mission 
to promote reverence for the past and inspiration for the future. They will share why they are dedicating their time and expertise to preserving these murals and what they mean not just for Pittsburgh, but for the labor movement as a whole. I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. We're here to have conversations and start conversations about the past, present, and future of the labor movement, as well as talk about some of the work the union is doing with USW activists leading the way. Make sure to follow the United Steelworkers Union on Twitter, at Steelworkers, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming service, like Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and more. I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers, and welcome again to Solidarity Works. Angelica Marks is a member of USW Local 9562 and works as an art handler at the Carnegie Museum of Art. She grew up surrounded by art, thanks to her mother. So when it was time to choose a career path, the field felt like a natural choice. And so when I went to the University of Pittsburgh, I ended up gravitating towards the humanities and getting an art history degree just because it was one of those things that just felt really natural and I fell in love with it. Um, so then from there, I sort of stayed within the arts community in Pittsburgh. I worked at the Carnegie Museum of Art in visitor services, so doing ticket sales. But at the same time, I ended up working or volunteering for a couple of local galleries. Uh, and then from there, I applied for an art handling position at the Carnegie Museum of Art for their upcoming 2022 International. Angelica eventually got an opportunity to learn framing, which then led her to networking with art conservators, including one who was working on a project to restore the murals at St. Nicholas Croatian Church. And again, they saw something in me and really trusted my work and, and my judgment. And they invited me to be on the, the conservation team as a, as a tech. Being invited to help restore these murals was not Angelica's first exposure to the historic artwork. Funny enough, when I first saw the murals, I was in college um, because I sort of had this informal concentration on muralism. So when I first saw them, it was more from a, an art historical standpoint and sort of taking in all the imagery and the themes and the way it functions within the space. And then later on, I have this return to the space it, but more so in terms of like really looking at the fine details of the wall and um, kind of forging this intimate relationship with the space and all of these little idiosyncrasies that happen uh, with the building. Angelica learned that the process of conserving artwork like these murals is not just an art, but a science, 
than when she first began restoring them last summer. She realized it was a rather simple science. I was sort of surprised to realize that, like, your go-to would just be distilled water um, and either a makeup sponge or a cotton swab that you would spin yourself. You would think that there would be a more overall chemical uh, interference with, you know, needing to clean these walls, but, but water was the go-to and actually did an incredible job of, of taking off 90 years of soot in, in industry and um, cigarette ash as well. Of course, the process still requires lots of patience and intense observation, including having to take a step back. It was honestly more so about technique um, and being able to assess when you should stop. Um, so from pretty much the entire time we were there, we cleaned the walls by color um, because each color reacted differently. And then there were so many times when we would kind of pause and all of us would get together and either, you know, stand afar from where we were working on the scaffolding or even go all the way down to the main floor and take a look from below, which would be your main vantage point, right? Just to make sure that it did look good from here and maybe we should not go further even though it technically isn't perfectly clean. Um, you want to maintain this balance of like the mural looking like it should um, and also doing your best to, you know, to still kind of clean it. Angelica believes, like many others, that preserving these murals is vital to preserving a unique moment in American culture and history. These murals are incredibly unique, just in general compared to other murals that you might find in churches, um, but especially for its time period, because during that time, there was a lot of federal programming happening to fund muralists across the country to do paintings in government buildings and schools to promote American values and sort of like the valor of war and all these positive sides of American culture. And Bonka came in and it's this private exchange between him and Father Zagar. And they decided what imagery they wanted to do. And it was actually this really visceral social critique of American culture at the time. And adding in the experience of the Croatian diasporic working class community which you're just not going to find anywhere else. I mean, they're just, they're just really special. And it's just sort of this, like, really unique viewpoint of Pittsburgh, right? Because all of these sort of social problems and, and critique of class and industrialization and labor exploitation and the tragedy of war is encased within this sort of religious ethos, but also contains a lot of Pittsburgh imagery. Angelica isn't the only USW member who is a firm believer in preserving Max Silvanka's work. Meredith Stepp works in the USW Education and Membership Development Department and got her first glimpse of the murals in 2012 while she was working as a labor educator at the University of Arkansas. 
she attended a conference held in Pittsburgh and took a group tour of the St. Nicholas Church. It was love at first sight. And when we walked in, it was just this miraculous um, murals that were 360 degrees all around um, and were just completely astonishing. Um, it's really, really, really not what you expected. Once Meredith joined the USW family in 2020, she became involved with a society to preserve the Millville murals of Maxilvanka, of which her colleague and now-retired steelworker, Steffi Domike, served as chair. Now, in 2024, Meredith has taken up the torch and leads the board in its efforts to raise awareness and educate the public about the murals. Meredith says this was a no-brainer as a self-professed fangirl of Max Ivanka and a lover of social realism, the style of art he perfected. And one of her goals is to spread his story and uplift his work to the same level as other artists of the genre. You know, very few people know about Max Ivanka um, in, our, in, our, in our country, much less here in Pittsburgh. Um, and it's, you know, such a, I thought, what a, what a treasure. And of course, the intersectionality with he's depicting, uh, labor here in Pittsburgh, literally on the walls, um, labor, uh, workers being sacrificed to industry. Um, I, one of the murals is mothers giving, uh, their sons to American industry and it depicts a, uh, a dead miner. And you can see the mills in the background, and it's all supposed to be set in Pittsburgh. Um, so, of course, that, you know, spoke to the work that I do for the labor movement, and as well as my passion for that sort of genre of art. It was a no-brainer for me. I mean, they were in my crawl, and I couldn't get them out of my head since I saw them in 2012. Um, and I was, one of the things when I was moving here, I was excited that, I would be in such close proximity to them again and to um, have the privilege of knowing Steffi and um, her being confident in my abilities to uh, serve the board in some meaningful way was I wasn't going to miss the opportunity. So uh, I, I jumped on it. To Meredith, one of the most important reasons to preserve these masterpieces is because the themes they express are still relevant today. Her favorite mural in particular probably could have been painted while we were speaking. One of my favorite murals is the, they call the capitalist, and it depicts what you would think very much a robber baron or industrialist at the time would look like. He's got a top hat, he's got a monocle, you know, fine, fine outfit on, and he's, he's feasting alone basically as a banquet uh, for one at his dining room table. And he's being served by uh, a black butler, and there is another individual who is on their hands and knees with a handout in front of him that he's um, very uh, un unaware of or indifferent to. Um, and they're also positioned at the same level as the dog under the table, both sort of um, on the same footing and, and, like, trying to just get scraps out of this person. Uh, and he's reading the stocks in one hand and smoking a cigarette with the other and even sort of dismissing this bounty of food in front of him. And in true Vanka style, he's very much about contrasting themes and symmetry. Uh, on the opposing wall right across from it is the imagery of a family 
uh, the immigrant family of very modest means all commuting around a table together, and they are literally breaking bread. They're eating bread and soup and not much else. Um, but you see in the background, Christ is imposed, uh, and he seems to be blessing this family um, and this collective, whereas this sort of individualism and very much, you know, it's very clear, greedy um, accumulation of the capitalist uh, is, you know, and, and are, are being contrasted, and the message is very clear. These murals are, in essence, the epitome of the American story. And like Angelica, what fascinates Meredith is that the imagery is not typical of the imagery one expects to find inside a church. I, I don't know about you, but when I go to, into a church and I look at a lot of the imagery, I find it interesting, but I don't necessarily relate to it or understand its function in my life now. Um, so for Vanka to recognize the... Um, the, the humanitarian imperative of religion. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's exactly what I want to say, but um, to really reflect, like, what our values are, um, what are the values of Christianity, and what are our values as Americans, and what are our values um, economically, and that those are still issues we're struggling and wrestling with to this day, and our workers certainly are and are confronting. As dark and haunting as Vanka's depictions are, Meredith sees beyond the surface to find hope for future generations. I think the nice thing is to know that, you know, this isn't a fight we've given up. It's one that will continue for a long time. And wherever there's injustice, there's resistance. And I think those are the sort of messages that we get. And in that way, I think it's very uplifting. Before we ended our conversation, Angelica wanted to quote one of her former professors, Barbara McCloskey, who wrote a paper about the significance of the Vanka murals. She says that Vanka's murals preserve an awareness of the conflicts and possibilities that define Pittsburgh, its social fabric, and its role in what America was and the promise of what it could be in the modern era. To learn how you can get involved with the mission to save the Maxovanka murals, including making a donation, visit www.vankamurals.org. That's www.vankamurals.org. Until next time, take care and stay safe, siblings. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Oh.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1908. That was the day the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on the Lowe versus Lawler case, also known as the Danbury Hatters case. In 1902, the United Hatters of North America attempted to organize the fur hat company, D.E. Lowe & Company. Lowe refused to meet with the union. The union struck and called for a nationwide boycott of Lowe hats. The AFL assisted in popularizing the boycott. They worked to convince retailers and customers not to buy from Lowe. The company sued the union's business agent and hundreds of its members. Lowe claimed the union violated the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 by interfering with interstate commerce. The Sherman Act had been designed to control big business monopolies, trusts, and cartels like the Standard Oil Company. An 1893 case, United States versus Workingmen's Amalgamated Council of New Orleans, established that the Sherman Act applied to labor unions as well. In the Danbury Hatters case, the Supreme Court ruled that the union combined to restrain trade or commerce among several states. The union countered by arguing that the union did not interfere with the transportation of hats and were not themselves engaged in interstate commerce. But the union lost. In addition to violating the Sherman Act, the court argued that individual union members could be held personally liable for damages incurred by their unions. The union was eventually held liable in damages amounting to $235,000. The AFL pushed back, demanding reforms in the Sherman Act. Partial reforms came with the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, but it would be another 20 years before the Norris LaGuardia Act would exempt organized labor from antitrust injunctions. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. As you heard today, it's a really terrific podcast. You can find and follow it on all the major podcast platforms. Our music was Ora Din Klechani Jagansko Oro by the Underscore Orchestra. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. And you can keep up with all the very latest labor arts news. Subscribe to the Labor Heritage Foundation's free weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.